Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing really well, and I'm really, really grateful you're here as we dive into the second part of this really important series called uh, Two Rooms. If you're at home online checking it out as well, we're grateful you're here with us too. Um, this series, I really believe, man, if, if we can wrestle with the ideas that we're talking about in this series, I think it really has the opportunity to um, give us a whole new perspective and a whole new experience of faith. And if you're a Christian, um, we portray faith in a certain way as well, wherever we go. However we live, it's in our own hearts and our own minds, but also in our relationships and how we portray it to others. And if we can wrestle with the ideas that we're portraying and talking about in this series, I think it'll not only allow us to perhaps see it differently, perhaps experience it differently, but also, really important, perhaps express it to, to others differently as well. Um, if you missed last week, last week's an important message as we laid a foundation for where we're going. I'll try to recap it briefly. As you can see, I got some props, and I need to show you, if you weren't here, you're like, what? on earth is he doing with that stuff? But basically, last week, as we introduced this idea of two rooms, we said that Christianity is often expressed or presented or experienced in two very significant ways, two specific ways, or two rooms, if you will, that we kind of live our faith out in one room or the other. I introduced you to a book called The Cure, written by John Lynch, Bruce McNichol, and Bill Thrall, and it's a fantastic book that, that delves into to these two rooms and actually name these two rooms brilliantly, the two rooms that they call um, the room of good intentions and the room of grace. And we live our Christianity or our faith out of either the room of good intentions or the room of grace. And we saw that the room of good intentions is a room where, where you kind of have to work really hard to please God. Everything you do, you have to work really hard to please Him. You have to work really hard to try and overcome your sin and to stop doing the wrong things and to make sure you do all the right things and enough of the right things. And that's why I have the scale because I think one of the best illustrations we can give of the room of good intentions is that it's, it's like having the scales of justice right there in the middle of your life, always watching, always judging, always saying, have you done enough? Have you done enough too much bad? Have you put enough on? Have you, have you pleased God enough? And if you put the right stuff on the right side and God's requirements and God's uh, holiness and God's perfection is kind of on one side, so you better put enough on the other side because if you don't, you're not gonna please God. And there's something in us that wants to be acceptable to him and accepted by him and please him. And so the scales are there kind of going, are you going to please him enough? But then we looked at something incredible and then this passage of scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote where he talks about how that's not how Christianity works. When Jesus came, he broke the curse of the scale. And if you were here, you saw when I broke the scale, it nearly hit me in the head. It broke so badly, I got such a fright. But I broke the scale as an illustration of what Jesus had done. That when he died on the cross, he broke the scale. And that's why I brought this just as a representation of what Jesus did, that the scale's broken, that no matter how many good things you bring to say, God, do I please you? And we put it on a broken scale. It doesn't work. A broken scale doesn't work. And no matter what you've done poorly or wrongly or badly, no matter what's in your heart right now, if the scale's broken, it doesn't work. And when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the scale. And he invited us out of this room of good intentions where you've got to work really hard to please God and do all the right things and invited us into the room of grace where he has done 
all that is necessary for us to please God, all that is necessary for us to be accepted by God, acceptable to God, the scale is broken. It doesn't work. And if we can live with that picture in our mind, then perhaps we can live in the room of grace where our bad doesn't affect God's picture of us because of what Jesus did. And our good efforts to try and fill the scale doesn't work because the scale is broken. So that's what we spoke about last week. And the, the room of grace, we said, is where real Christianity is experienced, where real Christianity actually exists, what Jesus did to invite us into that. But if we don't live there, we'll live under the, what I call the curse of the scale. And it's this curse because you never know, is it good enough? Am I doing it nice? And, and there's this constant pressure and tension of, is this enough? Have I done enough? So those are the two rooms that we introduced last week. The one room of good intentions, the other one, the room of grace. And I left us with a couple of questions, one specific question if you're a Christian. And the question is this, and I really hope we can wrestle with this because I really think this can change our experience of faith. And the question is this, which room am I in? Which room do I live my faith in? Do I live it in the room of good intentions or do I live it in the room of grace? Which room? And if you're not a Christian, the question I left with you is, which, which room has predominantly been presented to you? As you think of Christianity, this is what you've been told. Which room is it? Because it's really important to know if, if you've been presented with a Christian picture of, of what Christianity is. And then finally, if you've walked away from religion, if you've struggled with religion, and you've said, I've done enough, I can't do this anymore, and you've walked away. Which room have you walked away from? The room of good intentions or the room of grace? So that's what we spoke about last week. If, if you didn't hear it, I'd love for you to go catch up and, and hear what it is that we talked about. I went into more detail. Today, what I wanna do, though, is I wanna tackle a huge, <laughs> a huge topic, massive, massive topic. Um, and the reason I wanna tackle it is because I think a misunderstanding of this idea is part of the reason why we've got these two rooms. Part of the reason we end up with a scale in our lives, in our hearts, in the way we treat other people. It's because of a misunderstanding of one of the primary uh, teachings or doctrines of Christianity. Um, I mean, why on earth do we have a room of good intentions when Jesus clearly broke, broke the scale? Why do we keep gravitating toward that? I think it's because of the misunderstanding of this teaching in the Christian faith. And the teaching that I think we misunderstand so often is the Christian teaching of sin. The Christian doctrine of sin, a misunderstanding of the Christian doctrine of sin wreaks havoc with us. So I wanna kind of dive into that and because I believe when we understand the biblical or Christian teaching of sin, we can't but desire and long for and gravitate towards God's grace and what Christianity really is. When we misunderstand it, we tend to do sort of one of two things. When we misunderstand sin, we, we tend to either walk away from the faith or gravitate towards a room of good intentions where there's a scale that, that checks to see if you've done enough and checks to see if the people around you have done enough. So I wanna throw out to kind of discuss this idea of sin. Um, welcome to church, everybody, but hopefully this will be a, a helpful uh, discussion of sin. Let's talk about sin. No, I hope it's gonna be a helpful discussion of sin because again, when you fully understand this, truly understand this in the context of what Jesus is and who we are, it actually brings hope and joy and, and, and potential and a room of grace thing where the, where, the, where the scale is broken rather than this condemnation that so often comes and that's because of a misunderstanding, I think, 
of what sin is according to Christianity. So I'm gonna throw out a bunch of thoughts about sin and about how this all works and how we see ourselves and, and God sees us and, and hopefully this will kind of help us redefine perhaps how we understand sin. So the predominant picture of sin as I grew up um, kind of thinking about Christianity and as people taught me, as I read books, as I heard sermons, the predominant understanding of sin was always something like this. Maybe you experienced this. Sin is bad and if you sin, God's gonna judge you. So you better stop it and repent and do your best not to sin. Some of us are laughing and the reality is, I don't know, if you've experienced it that way, that's our experience, stop it, stop it, it's bad, God's gonna judge you if you do it. And that's the primary message I grew up with. Even while knowing that Jesus had died for me, I still grew up with that idea. Like, How does it fit together? Even as a Christian, that's what I believe my life should be defined by. And, and sin was any action or decision or thought or word that goes against the, the principles or the, the standard of the Bible and the Ten Commandments. That's a sin. And you better stop it. <laughs> Don't do it. Stop sinning. That's how I understood it. And Jesus, yes, he died for my sins, your sins. But if you're a Christian, then you better stop sinning as well to show him that you're grateful and that you love him. That's how I was taught. That's how I understood and grew up with my understanding of sin. Now, I'm not sure if you grew up like that or, or what understanding you have, but that understanding of sin is a kind of makes Christianity all about sin. Christianity becomes about sort of sin management. It comes about how to handle sin. It's a very sin-based or sin-founded Christianity. No wonder we end up with the, uh, the curse of the scale where I've got to watch what I'm doing and what I'm going because I'm supposed to stop it and I'm supposed to not do it because if I don't stop it, then I'm not gonna please God and if I sin, God's gonna judge me and it's all the stuff that's there and that's how I understand sin. But here's the thing. As you study Christianity, that's not actually a biblical understanding of sin. There's something so much deeper that we need to understand about this big, crazy idea of sin that we kind of push away and go, I don't really wanna talk about it because this is what it ends up looking like and feeling like. There's a much deeper and bigger understanding. And I think if we can understand this, it changes how we see sin, it changes how we see ourselves, and it changes how we see God and what Jesus has done and does in our lives. Before we look at the deeper understanding, let me keep building the case for how I think sin is taught and experienced in the room of good intentions, and how I experienced it, and how I've sort of led sometimes in my life as well. I think sin in the room of good intentions, or with a scale, is primarily, and this is a big deal, sin is primarily seen as sins, if you know what I mean. It's primarily seen as the things you do that are bad, the, the, the decisions you make that are bad. Sin is seen as the wrong you do, the mistakes you do, the, the, that when you don't live up to a certain standard. That's why we have a scale. It's primarily seen as the times when you break God's commandments, when you miss the mark. It's primarily seen, sin is primarily seen as those actions or words or thoughts or, or secrets or things or, or, or feelings that I'm not supposed to have, but I have. It's primarily seen as sins. That's why the question comes up. I don't know if you've ever asked this, but I've seen it in movies. People ask this, and I've thought of myself, is this a sin? Because sin is primarily seen as the sins, the actions of what we do. And that is part of it, of course. But, but, but that's not the whole picture. And, and, and I'll get to that in a minute, what the whole picture is and how that looks. But I think in the room of good intentions, the primary way we understand sin is the sins and the things that we do that are bad and the, the sins that have repercussions in our lives. And when you see it that way, what happens is you end up creating a very judgmental atmosphere around you. 
me ask you, have you ever experienced judgment in a church? I wonder if it's because we've seen sin as sins. And when you see it as sins, it creates this judgmental atmosphere around where, where it's all about, did you do that? Did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you decide that? That's wrong. That goes against what God says you should do. And it's all about the sins. And it becomes a very rule-based faith. And the scales of justice are slammed into the middle of your face and your heart where you've got to live, not just thinking about myself, am I doing it right? But you kind of portray it to other people sometimes as well. I know I have. When we see it as sins, the primary instruction in the room of good intentions when sin is all about sins, the primary instruction or mandate or command is, is, is what? Stop it. Don't do it. Stop sinning. Change. Fix it. Work hard to try and please God. Self-effort is the, the, the primary motivation of I can do that. I need to honor God. I need to please God. I need to do all this stuff. That's what is driven in us. It sort of inspires our own self-effort in us to say, I better do it right. The common word heard in that environment, and it's a biblical word, and we, we've talked about what this means, but this is the primary word, and it kind of is a tweaked understanding of this word, but the common word in this environment is repent. And sometimes you kind of raise your voice a little bit. Repent. And it's like, ah, and it's understood. This is what repent means in this context. Say you're sorry and stop it. Change, and that's what we understand. But what almost always happens in an environment where sin is about sins, and it's about stop it and don't do it and change, is that at some point in our lives, we eventually discover that I can't stop it. At least not to the degree that I think God wants me to. And I, and I kind of mis make mistakes, and then what? Oh no, I've got another thing on the wrong side of the scale. I can't stop it. At least, you know, it seems like perfection, and he's holy, and how does it work? I can't stop it. And then what happens is oftentimes when we can't stop it is we start wondering, does Christianity even work? It's asking me to do stuff that I can't do. Do I work? Is my faith broken? Is there something wrong with me? Because everybody else around me looks like they've stopped it, We'll talk about that later in the series, because it's not true, by the way. Spoiler alert. But I, I either think, okay, Christianity doesn't work, or I don't work, and I walk away from this faith thing, because it's all about stop it, and if I don't do it right, then it's going to judge, and ah, and it's hard. Or another thing we sometimes do, and maybe you've experienced this, um, is that sometimes we kind of try to hide the ones that we don't do and we point to the ones that other people do do on their scale and then we kind of do that so it distracts us and other people from our own mess and points it to other people and their scales are way more tilted than my scale so I'm okay and in doing that I try to distract God even from my own mess and try to pretend that somehow I am good enough and my scale is good enough but if you really compare God to his holiness and to me ah, like we saw last week it doesn't work, but, but, but if it's all about sins and sin management and don't do it and stop it, that's kind of where we end up, but that, the crazy thing is that's not the full or that's not what Christian understanding of sin is because the Christian understanding of sin is not really actually, and, and we can talk more in depth about this, we don't have time to dig super deep into this right now, but, but the Christian understanding of sin is not really that it's about sins. 
the Christian understanding is that it's more deeper than that. It goes behind that. That's symptoms. The Christian understanding of sin is that it's more like a sin disease, if you will, that goes deeper into every one of our hearts, that humans are born with the sin disease inside of us that, that we can't fix. Let me show you a few scriptures that sort of point to this as we build this case that sin is not about the sins. Yes, there's part of that, I understand, but that's just the surface. It goes way deeper that there's something in us that's a sin disease. Isaiah 64 verse six says this, we're all infected and impure with sin. Now, if I didn't give that introduction, that would be a really harsh verse to put on the screen as the first verse today, right? <laughs> but if you think about it, this is the understanding of Christianity. We're all infected and impure with sin, every single human being. Psalm 51 verse five, King David is talking about himself and he says this, for I was born a sinner. Before I could make any decisions, put anything on the scale, good, bad, or ugly, before I could do anything, I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, <laughs> there was no chance for me to choose anything, and yet somehow Christianity seems to teach that, 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 that we're born with this thing in us. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, if we claim to have, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And it's interesting that he uses the word have. He doesn't say if we claim to commit no sin, or if we claim to have done no sin, or if we claim to do no sin. No, he says if we claim to have no sin. That, that's, that's a big deal. In his discussion on sin, Paul, who's, man, this guy wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, one of the greatest Christian writers ever. He explained Christianity. He was such a defender of the broken scale, saying nothing you can do can, can you know, earn God's love and nothing you can do can lose God's love because of what Jesus did. He's such a proponent of the room of grace, always inviting us into the room of grace. He describes sin in depth in his writings. In one of the places, he sort of talks about the fact that, that humans, we have this, but where did it come from? And he says that there was a time when God created the world as Christianity teaches, there was a time that, that there was no sin in us as humans. There, we, weren't, we didn't have this broken human nature. We were made perfectly. But then when our first ancestors sinned, something broke in us. This is what he says in Romans chapter five, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread. It sounds like a virus. It sounds like a disease. It spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. How did everyone sin in Adam? But somehow when that happened, it was almost like a hereditary disease that came when we were born into this human family. There's something in us. And scripture calls it, Christianity calls it the sin disease. Verse 19 adds, says, says this, because one person disobeyed God, many became Sinners, born with this hereditary disease. So it's kind of very clear as you look at these scriptures that throughout Christianity, that sin is not just about sins, bad mistakes or bad decisions or words or, or thoughts or whatever it is. Those sins are more like symptoms and sin is more like a disease. But, and, and this is really important as we look at this and discover what, what Christianity sort of teaches about the sin disease. The sin disease that you think about it, it's really important to understand that it's not a sin disease that if I take the you know, right stuff or if I do the right stuff, I can fix the sin disease. It's a sin disease that's chronic. That's a problem that goes with us as 
humans. We can't fix it on our own. As I, I thought about this, I, I was like thinking, what's the best illustration of the sin disease? And the best I can come up with is that sin disease is kind of like type 2 diabetes. Now, I don't know if you've ever bumped into diabetes. There's actually three kinds of diabetes. There's gestational diabetes. We're gonna kind of push that aside. Um, but, but there's type 1 and type 2 diabetes that, that, that impact people. And, and I think this is a good illustration of, of sin and how it works. Type 2 diabetes, I think sin is more like type 1, not type 2. Type 2 diabetes is when your body doesn't use insulin well and can't keep blood sugar at normal levels. Insulin is the hormone that your body should be producing to break down sugars and, and allow energy to get into the cells. Like, it's super important for you to live. And type 2 diabetes is when your body doesn't use it well, the CDC says this about type 2 diabetes. It says that type 2 diabetes can be prevented or delayed with healthy lifestyle changes, such as losing weight, eating healthy, and being active. So it's almost like the CDC says type 2 diabetes has a scale. That if you eat right, exercise, lose weight, do what you're supposed to do, pray right, <laughs> you know, do all these things, then, then you can fix it. If you, if you do it, you can delay it or you can prevent it. You can fix the problem if you do the right things. And if we understand sin as a type two type diabetes, then we'll end up in the room of good intentions that if I just do enough things and I kind of blame myself, I've landed over there, I can't not do this well, it's because I'm making the wrong choices and if I just make the right choices, then I'm gonna get to the place where I can be healthy and this won't impact me anymore. Type two, diabetes. And the Cure, that book that I keep referring to, as it talks about the room of good intentions, it describes this beautiful room. And it says there's a banner on it that says this, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. I've got to work hard to do it and I can fix the problem between me and God. And if I work hard, then I can fix that problem. It describes how Christianity is often experienced and taught and lived in the sense of self-effort and hard striving to be all that God wants me to be. That if I can just stop sinning, do, stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things, put it all on the right scale, then things will be fixed. And we sometimes see sin, if we're not seeing it as the sins and it's just the stuff I gotta stop, then maybe we see it a little deeper as type two diabetes that if I stop the things then I can fix the problem inside of me and I can be good. Scale. But that's not what those scriptures seem to be saying. It seems to be saying we're born with it. There's something there that's in us that impacts us and scriptures throughout script, you know, the Bible sort of talk about this. It seems to indicate that sin is something that we're born with, that we're infected with, and that we as humans all have and we can't fix by ourselves. More like type one diabetes. Here's what type one diabetes is. It's when there is something actually wrong with your pancreas. Your pancreas is the thing that produces your insulin. When there's something wrong with your pancreas and it doesn't produce insulin. And, and, and nothing you can do can fix it. CDC says this, that if you have type one diabetes, you will need to take insulin every day to survive. Every day to survive. Your body doesn't produce what it needs and you need to actually inject insulin into your body so that you can survive and live and your cells can have the energy that it needs. I actually had a friend, a great friend of mine growing up uh, who was diabetic and I remember um, he would take an injection five times a day 
and put it in the side, inject insulin into him so he could survive. And I remember him telling me, it was kind of weird, that, that this was actually pig insulin <laughs> that he would take. And, and, and here's the thing. When I studied this stuff, I realized that in 1929 is when they first discovered insulin. And before they discovered this external help for someone who suffered from type 1 diabetes, they would die. They couldn't survive. Diabetes.org says this, before insulin was discovered in 1921, people with diabetes didn't live for long. There wasn't much doctors could do for them. The most effective treatment was to put patients with diabetes on very strict diets with minimal carbohydrate intake. This could buy patients a few extra years, but it couldn't save them. And in 1921, they discovered that if they can extract insulin from something outside of the broken pancreas, the human, and, and they used pigs and cows, and for a while that worked to a degree, and my friend actually used it, but obviously there were some repercussions because pig insulin, <laughs> I don't think works. There were some sort of allergic reactions sometimes with people, and eventually in the 80s, they, they were able to use human DNA to, to create this insulin, but it was still something that needed to be injected, and it's been so much better. But if they could take this insulin and inject it into their bodies, diabetics, who couldn't fix their pancreas, who couldn't produce their own insulin, diabetics, and, and they, you know, they couldn't through diet and exercise, while that's really good, they couldn't produce the cure that they needed. They couldn't produce the insulin that they needed. But, and here's the thing, and this is a big thing as it relates to Christianity, but when a diabetic lives in dependence on this external source of insulin, this external cure, it saves them. And it gives them the ability to live and thrive the way that they want to and were created to. And it helps them avoid the consequences and the repercussions of their disease. I really think that's the closest illustration I can think of to the biblical doctrine of sin. That according to Christianity, all of us have. That we were born, as Scripture said, with the sin disease, like type 1 diabetes. And we can't fix it. We may have tried but, but Christianity teaches if you try, then you better do it perfectly. And how many of us have done it perfectly? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But, but, but we can't fix it. And there's nothing we can do. And if nothing is done to, 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 for the cure, to, to solve the sin problem in us, it will eventually cause complications, suffering, and death. Death relationally, death spiritually, death physically. That's what it has done. But, and this is the beauty of Christianity, we can't get enough stuff on the scale to have enough insulin produced in our own body. But if we can say, oh, that doesn't work, Jesus came and broke the scale, and when he came and broke the scale, he brought the cure. And he said, if we can get the cure from outside of ourselves and live in reliance on him, not in our own effort, not in our own ability, because diet and exercise can't produce insulin when the pancreas doesn't produce insulin. When we can rely on this external source of insulin from outside of us, then we can be saved. We can be, you know, have the life, the energy that's supposed to go into our cells can go into our cells and we can avoid the consequences of sin. Let me use some biblical language to kind of 
translate that into biblical language. Christianity teaches that we're all born with a sin disease. Sometimes the word that's used is the flesh. Maybe you've heard that before. Sometimes the word that's used is sinful nature. Sometimes the word that's used is depravity. So it's a harsh word, but that kind of goes in the same things. So, so Christianity teaches we're born with this sinful nature, this sin disease that we can't fix, that hurts us and hurts those around us. That's what it does. And we don't need insulin to fix the sin problem. <laughs> the word that Christianity talks about is we need a righteousness that is not our own. We need forgiveness. We need a righteousness that, that changes who we are, a justification. That's a Bible word for, you know, if you've been justified by what Jesus did, you're made just as if I'd never sinned, just as if my pancreas worked, <laughs> just as if I have what I need. He died. Jesus died. He took on, when he died, he took on our broken pancreas. He took on our sin disease, and because of it, he died, and, and from it, he died, and for it, he died. And when he died, he took it all, and he rose again, and then he offers us his righteousness, his spirit, his insulin, <laughs> if you can think about it in that way. That's what Christianity teaches about the doctrine and the idea of sin, that each of us has the sin disease and that he came to give us the cure. Now, let me ask you, what if we saw sin this way? Wouldn't it change the way we experience it? We might get to the place where we stop going, well, if I've done enough, because if I don't have the insulin, I can't do enough to fix it. We might move away from, from this curse of the scale and begin to gravitate and move toward this room of grace where Jesus broke the scale. No wonder he broke the scale because I can't produce what I need to produce to save myself. And he said, you're never gonna be able to do it. If I break the scale, you'll remember that and you can come into the room of grace and receive the cure. And, and I didn't come to just bring the cure, I came to be the cure and to give you the grace you need for forgiveness, the grace you need for rescue, the grace you need to transform you, and the grace you need to empower you to be who I've made you to be. I think if we, if we understood sin this way, not just as sins on a scale, but as the sin disease, I think we'd stop judging people. Because it's hard to judge people that are sick especially sick people who have the same sickness as I have. Maybe I have different symptoms, but you have different symptoms, but it's the same basic disease that we all have. Why do we judge people who are sick when we're sick? Because we pick sometimes the symptoms that we don't like. But if we see sin this way, it's hard to judge. This idea of sin as a disease and the idea that Jesus came to be the cure is seen beautifully in an interaction that he had with some religious leaders who hadn't seen their own sickness and their own sin and a group of people who had. And he, he says it brilliantly in Matthew chapter nine, verse 10, he says this later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors who were hated people. And uh, because they stole, they lived a sinful life. Many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees, who were self-righteous teachers of the law, who always pulled people back to the room of good intentions and always said you gotta live by the scale and judged people by the scale, when the Pharisees saw what Jesus was doing, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? 
in this translation. Another translation says, just, you know, tax collectors and sinners. Why does he eat with them? The judgment that oozes out of their mouths, why is it there? Because they hadn't seen sin as a disease. They saw it as you better do it right. It's easy to judge them. But when they saw it, look, look at how Jesus responds. He said, so beautiful. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And right there, he equates sin with sickness. He actually clarifies it at the end of verse 13. He says, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, equating it to the healthy, but those who know they are sinners. A diabetic can only get help if they acknowledge they're a diabetic. A diabetic can only get help if they acknowledge they need insulin from outside. And that's what happened here. These sinners acknowledged there's something, I need a doctor. Whereas these self-righteous people said, nope, look at my cool scale. It's way better than everybody else's. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm, I've come to be the doctor, to bring the cure for those who need it. It changes everything. You see, when you know you're sick and you need help, you don't judge others who are sick and need help. When you understand sin only as sins, the bad things we do, you end up judging people for their sins. But when you understand sin as a disease that we are all infected with, you don't judge other people because you know you're infected as well. And Christianity, as you can see, teaches that Jesus came as a doctor to heal the sick. I believe one of the reasons we have the room of good intentions where we have to work hard to fix our sins is because we don't understand sin in a Christian way. We don't understand that it's deeper than just the sins we do. And if it's just about sins, then it's better repent, better change, better do, better fix. But if it's a disease, then it changes, right? If I can fix my sickness, if I can do anything, I'll do it. But I can't. If it's a disease that I can't fix, that, that, that I'm infected with from birth, then I need help. I need grace. I need insulin. I need God's spirit, his grace, rescuing grace, forgiving grace, transforming grace, and empowering grace to change me. If we understand that sin is deeper than just sins, and that's symptoms, then it brings us into the room of grace going, is there a doctor in the house? rather than watch what I can do and I'm better than you. It's much, much different. Um, this understanding changes everything. I really think it does. It changes everything that we experience. You don't have to live under the judgment of the scale anymore if you understand it as a sin disease that he came to help us with and change. Let me ask you something. Uh, if you're a parent and you've had a child that got sick, you know, not because they went outside when it was cold and you told them not to and wear a sweater, you know, then we get mad and we're like, I told you so. But if a child got sick from something that they had nothing to do with, well, what's the feeling? Does a parent get angry and judge the child and get disappointed with the child? No, the parent gets has compassion and care and help and has a desire to do whatever they need to do to save their child. That's what Jesus came to do. In fact, John Lynch and Bruce McNichol and Bill Thrall in writing The Cure, they give this beautiful picture of how God looks at you and me when it comes to us. And I wanna read this, it's so beautiful. It says this, before God was over there, before my understanding was that God was over there somewhere, on the other side of my sin, 
obscured by the mound of trash, the sin trash between us. But now I realize he's here with me. I can picture it as clearly as if, as if it's happening. He puts his hands on my shoulders, staring into my eyes. No disappointment, no condemnation, only delight, only love. He pulls me into a bear hug so tight it knocks the breath out of me for a moment. At first, I feel unworthy. I wanna push away and cry out, I don't deserve this. Please stop, I'm not who you think I am. But he does know. And, and soon, I give in to the embrace and I hear him say, I know, I know. I've known from before time began. I've seen it all. I'm right here. I've got you. I know everything you've thought done. I know and I'm right yeah. And now I'm holding on with all my might. He stays right there in that moment until he's certain his love has been completely communicated and received. Only then does his, he release his grip so he can turn to put an arm around my shoulder. He then directs my sight to this mound of filth now in front of both of us as we stand. After several moments with a straight face, he says, that's a lot of sin. A whole lot of sin, don't, don't you ever sleep? <laughs> he starts laughing, I start laughing. Gazing at the mound of pain, I consider that I never thought I'd experience this kind of moment. All the pain, regret, and damage of my life laid out in front of me, all that have caused me shame and condemnation, all that have caused me to pretend and impress and yearn for control, all that have broken my, my heart and his, but now I'm viewing it with Jesus' arm around me. He's been holding me with utter delight all this time with, with my sin right there in our midst, never allowing it between us. He wants me to know. He wants to know me in the midst of this, not when I get it all cleaned up. I know now that if this mound is ever to shrink, it'll be by trusting this moment for the rest of my life. I love that picture. It's so beautiful that Jesus is standing there and we sometimes think, I better get the scale right, I better fix the stuff, otherwise Jesus is not going to be pleased, he's not going to come be with me, it's not going to work, I better get it right. And Jesus is going, hey, I know it all, you can't fix it anyway, I've broken the scale, won't you let me come and stand next to you and not just bring you the cure, let me be the cure in your life. I am your righteousness, and if we're ever gonna get past this stuff, it is only because you can inject my righteousness, my life, my love, my power, my grace into your life that'll help you change your life. In the room of good intentions, he's on the other side of this pile of sin looking at us with a disappointed scowl on his face. In the room of grace, <laughs> he's taken it all already on the cross and he loves you so much and he's going, would you let me in? Would you acknowledge that you're, you've got this disease that I can help you? solve. Christianity teaches that Jesus knows us, loves us, sees it all, knows us fully, the embarrassingly difficult, hidden things. He knows it all. And he's going, I got the cure. Would you let me in? He's come to be the doctor for, this, for, for our sin. Let me close with a couple of scriptures. Romans 5 verse 6 expresses this beautifully. It says, when we were utterly helpless, 
when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but, and by implication, we're not necessarily upright or especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It's beautiful. He's not disappointed in you. He's made the solution. He broke the scale and he's inviting you to go, hey, I've got the cure. Would you let me be your doctor? Romans 8 verse 1 says this. It's beautiful. And now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ, for those who've relied on Christ, for those who've acknowledged, hey, this is who I am and Christ is the cure. There is no condemnation for them. Verse two, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. That sin disease, there is a cure. And when we trust in him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power that leads to death. The law of Moses, the scale, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Our pancreas was broken. No matter what we do, it can't fix the disease. Exercise, diet, pray right, do all, it can't fix it. So that failed because of this power of our sinful nature. But God did, the next line says, so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that we, the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us who no longer follow or rely on our sinful nature, but instead follow and rely on the Spirit. When we understand the biblical teaching or doctrine of sin, we understand that it's not about what we can do to fix it, but it's a disease that we need help with. And then sometimes what I do is I go, okay, give me one shot of insulin. Here we go, I'm great and I wanna live my rest of my life. No, 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 Christianity says it's a daily reliance because you know what, my pancreas still doesn't work. My sinful nature, I drag it around with me until I die. But I can live a great life. I can live the life he wants me to based on his righteousness and strength when I rely on him. And when I mess up, thank God for his forgiving grace, (laughs) his insulin grace, it changes everything. So that's where we're going. That's what we're talking about. And the question I want to leave you with today is this. Do you just see sin as sins or do you see it as something deeper, a sin disease that we as humans can't fix on our own? Do you just see it as sins or as a sin disease that we can't fix on our own? A couple of kind of clues is how much do I judge other people's sin symptoms? Because if I see it as a disease, I won't judge them that much. How much do I rely on my own effort to fix things? And lastly, how much do I despair when I mess up? Because if I see it as a sin, then all those things are gonna be real. If I see it as a sin disease, then I'm gonna go back to the doctor every time I mess up and I'm not gonna judge others because of it. So do you see sin as a sins or do you see it as a sin disease? Have you discovered this cure is insulin because it changes everything. I would hope that we can wrestle with this idea of sin and how it impacts us 
and how that impacts where we live our lives in the room of good intentions or in the room of grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for this idea because I know me. I know my pride. I know my selfishness. I know my sin. And I'm so grateful that if it's not dependent on me balancing the scales, because if that was, if it was dependent on that, I'd be gone long ago. But thank you, Jesus, that you broke the scale. You invited me into grace, and you said, I've got the cure. Would you come and rely on me? And Father, thank you that as we walk with you, as we rely on you, we can live in a way that honors you, that loves you, that loves others, that, that is the best version of ourselves. And when we mess up, we go back to the doctor over and over again, and you welcome us with open arms as we trust you. Father, help us understand this picture. Help us understand you. Help us understand the cure so we can live our lives the way you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen.